Many of us live very blessed lives, and we are very thankful to God for blessing us. But I have a question for you today. Difficult question. Would you still worship God if you had nothing left? Would you still love God if he gave you nothing and took away everything? Would you still follow God if you lost every blessing you now have? How, how would you feel about God? How would you feel about God if tomorrow you lost your job in a humiliating way? How would you feel about God if every one of your investments crashed? How would you feel about God if your house burned down, along with all your stuff? How would you feel about God if your beloved family pet got hit by a car? How would you feel about God if one of your kids maybe got leukemia and maybe died shortly after? How would you feel about God if your spouse left you or your girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you? How would you feel about God if multiple of these things happen to you at once. These aren't nice things to think about, right? But they are necessary things to think about because it can expose how high or low a view of God we have. How good is God, really? How great is God? How glorious is God? Is he worthy of your devotion regardless of what happens to you? Maybe you've already had to answer these questions before. Many more of us will still have to at some point down the road. And on one ancient day, these are the questions that the man known as Job had to answer. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 1, which we began last week. If you're using a pew Bible, it is on page 417. 417, we eat a Job, chapter 1. Powerful passage today. Very important for us to look at closely, but once you find your spot... Would you please bow your head and pray with me that we would understand this clearly, understand Job clearly, but more so that we would see Job's God clearly and our God clearly as we look at these words together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know that we'll be asking some hard questions today and and examining our lives and examining what we believe about you. And, And Lord, I pray for your grace. I pray for your wisdom. On this time, help you. I pray that your spirit would just be working on every one of our hearts. Help us be honest. Help us be open. 
Help us be vulnerable today to what you have to say. May we run to you above anything else in our lives by the end of today. God, please, God, may we put you first. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were with us last week, we met Job, who was an incredibly impressive individual in history. His life seemed like a a perfect life. He actually seemed like a a perfect person. He wasn't perfect or sinless, but he did have an exemplary integrity and character. He was a man of his word and an uncorrupted man, a a godly man. And look in verse 1, it said this. It said, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was also unfathomably rich in every sense. Look at verse 2. There, was born, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He had it made. Okay? His, his only concern in life that's spoken of was actually a spiritual concern for his children. And in verse 4 it says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Maybe it's a birthday party, but we don't know. And when the days of this feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And as we saw, this showed us that no matter who we are, no matter how wealthy we are, how great we are, life isn't perfect after all. Right? We, we have a desperate need for God's mercy. So this is why Job kept these offerings going continually. But this was a, uh, our first little snapshot into Job and his life. God had richly blessed him. Everything seemed to go right for Job. Until one day. One infamous, disastrous, devastating day for Job. The scene for this day is actually set for us in heaven. The story begins there. Read with me in verse 6. Now there was a day. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. So what we have here, just to to picture the scene, we have a gathering of angels before God's throne, the sons of God before God's throne, kind of like a a mission debrief, to to report on their activities, to, to receive new orders from God. But if you noticed, as we read it, an intruder had snuck in among them, amongst the angels, Satan, who was formerly a good angel, but we know had since fallen and was now known as 
the chief adversary of God's people. In fact, that's what his name means. Satan means adversary. We're not given a lot of details about the scene, so we don't know some things about it, such as whether or not this is a regular occurrence for the angels or for Satan. Don't know. Or whether Satan was summoned by God or if he came uninvited. So we don't know if God asked his question that he asked him, like, from where have you come? Or more like, from where have you come? Like he was asking for a report on what he was doing. Regardless, Satan gave him a report on his activities. Well, I've been wandering around from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Probably much like Peter warned us about in 1 Peter 5, that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But then, God asked Satan a very interesting question in verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. It's like he said, In all your travels, did you happen to notice one guy in particular? He's one of my favorites, if God has favorites. In fact, he might be the best human specimen in my creation right now. There is no one else like him in the whole earth, on the face of the earth. The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now, does does this scene not initially take us aback? God is bragging about a fallen human. Isn't that crazy? Boasting about Job. So he asked, well, is is God actually impressed by the people on earth? Well, no, I I think we'd be extremely hard-pressed to say that God is impressed by us. However, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that God can be pleased by us. Be pleased with us. And if there is a clear lesson from that we learn from Job's character and, and God's response to Job's character, I believe it's this, that God is pleased and glorified when we consistently fear him. Okay? God is pleased and glorified when we consistently fear him. Like we saw last week, Job's exemplary character reveals God's ideal for us, his desired ideal. Job may not have been perfect, but any true believer would do well to aspire to be like Job. Holy, righteous, God-fearing, repentant. Those four things are repeated over and over again about Job. The trouble that comes when we inevitably fall short of that ideal, that standard. And that's where the good news of God's grace comes in. The gospel that we are saved not because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. And that when God looks at those of us who are believers, he sees Jesus, 
so that he is always pleased with us because he's always pleased, perfectly pleased with Jesus. The fact that our actions can please or glorify God neither negates nor adds to the gospel. Okay, many times in the New Testament, we are told to do something simply because it pleases God. It makes God happy. And we should have no greater joy than the privilege of pleasing our Maker. With our service and our giving and our acts of love or sharing, or encouraging words or praises, it's almost like we're little children bringing a Uh, one of our pathetic art projects to a parent, hoping that they'll be pleased. And yet, because of Jesus, we have the guarantee that God will be pleased. No matter how pitifully feeble or broken or small our offerings are. He's pleased when we seek to live for him. From observation here in Job, we can deduce that fearing God definitely pleases God. Fearing God. Now, when you hear fear, you might think something negative. But the fear of God is not like other fears, like the fear of spiders or heights, okay? The fear of God is the right response we should have when we understand who God is and who we are in comparison in relation to Him. A very high view of God. Okay, the, the, you think that God is so holy, so perfect, so just, so powerful, so above us, that he should be feared. He is not to be taken lightly, or spoken of lightly, or approached lightly. You could say the fear of God is an awe of who he is, a respect for his power, and a worship of his holiness. In fact, sometimes in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, fear is almost used as a synonym for worship. But it is a solemn, serious kind of worship. Worship that makes your jaw drop. And when we realize how awesome God is and how sinful we are, our fear of God should always motivate us to repent of our sin and seek to obey God. It always does that. This is the fear of God. And Job had this in spades and God was pleased. Why? Because fearing God is putting God in his rightful place as the creator and ruler and judge over us. And honoring God as God brings great glory to God. The universe sees that and it's just amazing. Angels marvel at it. God revels in it. And apparently, Satan rages. Now, when we hear this story, we may wonder, well, why would, why would God point Job out to Satan? If you, had a, if you had a favorite sheep, wouldn't it be foolish to show it off to a wolf? Why would he want Satan to consider Job? 
Almost like he was offering him up as bait. Well, let's get a couple things clear right off the bat. Firstly, if God didn't allow it, Satan couldn't have touched Job. Okay? God had Job perfectly protected from evil, as we're going to see shortly. Okay, so it wasn't foolish or dangerous for him to, to single Job out. He was protected perfectly from evil. God, really, what it comes down to, God wanted the glory that he rightfully deserved for Job's good character. That's why he bragged about how amazing Job was, because it really revealed how amazing God was himself. And did we think, well, did God invite or incite Satan to attack Job? I would offer you a careful yes. Okay? God does not do what Satan does in the following bit. But God does use what Satan does to accomplish his greater purposes, his greater story. We're going to study this whole dynamic between God and Satan much more in depth next week. So if you're interested in that, make sure you come back and delve into that some more. But here's the fact for now, okay? Job's perfect world was indeed about to be attacked. And seemingly the main reason it came under attack was to see if Job would keep fearing God. It was a test. Suggested by Satan and sovereignly allowed by God. And what we'll see is this. Our fear of God can be severely tested by this life's sorrows. Our fear, our devotion, our worship of God can be severely tested by this life's sorrows and trials or tribulations or what have you. Look how this conversation continued in heaven. In verse 8 again, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. You know know what I like in this conversation too? Cosmic trash talk. Right? You know what trash talk is? Like in a sport, maybe, when two people are competing against each other, they banter back and forth, maybe insulting each other or just throwing jokes. You know, we're going to beat you and grind you up into powder. Oh, yeah? Your mama couldn't beat me. <laughs> right? Or you've, uh, you've never beat us when it matters. Well, you haven't won a cup in 48 years. <laughs> can almost sense God and Satan bantering here. Right? God goes, hey, and you're wandering. Do you notice Job? Isn't he great? And Satan goes, oh, come on. He's not that great. He's only good because you've blessed him and you've protected him from me. Anyone would fear you in his perfectly sanitized conditions. Right? Let me at him. 
Let me at him. You'll see. He won't stand up under the pressure. Essentially, that's what Satan claimed here. Verse 9, partway through, he says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you stretch out your hand and touch all he has, he will curse you to your face. So, Satan suggested for God is to touch Job. The word there actually means to smite Job. So he challenged God. Come on, reach down and smite him. He'll give up on you. You'll see. The message paraphrases what Satan said this way. See, do you think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet. Make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. Bless everything he does. He can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you to your face, that's what. So, God retorts, fine. Bring it. We'll see. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And with that, Satan left to to wreak havoc on Job and his life. And We'll probably wonder a number of times why God would allow Satan to do this. Why would God be okay with letting his beloved servant Job suffer terribly? But we often forget that that God does powerful things through people's suffering. He is often working a much larger and much greater plan. Just look at Jesus and how he suffered. God's closest friends frequently suffer the fiercest. God wanted to work something great through Job's life. And for that, he required suffering. And Satan would be wielded as his tool. God wasn't being bullied by Satan here. He fully agreed to the wager. But are you sensing yet what was really at stake? It says it. Job's prosperity and well-being and happiness weren't really that important in the grand scheme of things. God's honor was at stake. His greatness. His goodness. His glory. The question Satan posed was essentially the same question I posed to you earlier. Would you still worship God if you had nothing left? Would anyone worship God if they were stripped of everything? Would Job, the greatest man alive, still worship? Or would he cave? Here it is. Is God, is God really 
worthy of worship in and of himself, regardless of his blessings. Derek Kidner says the challenge was, does God's finest servant, his boasted showpiece, serve him for conscience or convenience? What about you? Do you worship God for conscience, what you believe about God, or convenience, how he blesses you? Do you love God for who he is or for what he gives you? One is worship of God, and the other is idolatry of self. Christopher Ashe explains what was going on here. He says, In some deep way it is necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man and that God's worth is in no way dependent on God's gifts. This is hugely key, okay? This is why God sovereignly ordained and even administered this test to Job. Satan had struck at the heart of the universe, the glory and the worth of God, and he was sure that no one would worship God with nothing. God disagreed. The only way to find out who is right, put it to the test. The way to do that, Take away the blessings. Then see what happens. Therefore, Job's fear of God, his devotion and worship and love would be severely tested. Likewise, whenever we suffer, our view and attitude towards God is put to the test. Our fear of God is put on trial. Do we really fear God? Do we really trust Him? There's a reason that hard times are often called the testing of our faith. As James encourages us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Job's testing all began on a day that began like any other. Nothing out of the ordinary. Much like any other disaster we might experience, terrorist attacks or tsunamis or tornadoes, just an ordinary day. Right up until the moment it wasn't. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. So we know this is a, a regular occurrence for Job's family. They partied a lot. But Job was about to hear some very stunning and unpleasant news. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, can you imagine this moment? Okay, maybe Job is sitting on his porch sipping some lemonade. Okay, when one of his servant comes running full speed up to him, gasping for breath. Sir, I've got some really bad news. Your cows, 
your, your donkeys, they're gone. Right? There's the Sabians. Oh, and worse, all the other servants are dead. Remember, Job had at least a thousand oxen and five hundred donkeys. That's a lot stolen. And he had hundreds of servants to care for these animals. This is a lot of bloodshed of people he knew. Now, how do you think Job felt when he heard this news? Alarmed? Shocked? Angry? Heartbroken? I have a feeling he probably didn't even get the chance to feel much at all. Look at verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The fire of God usually refers to lightning. So most likely, lightning sparked a wildfire. And in which in the arid Middle East quickly spread and trapped Job's entire sheep herd. And rapidly, 7,000 sheep and hundreds of shepherds were burned alive. One shepherd, only one, managed to escape the flames in the horrifying scene bolted to Job, right on the heels of the first servant, probably weeping as he came. Maybe even interrupted the first one's message, because his news had to be worse. Job, Job, I, I hate to have to tell you this, but your sheep, your shepherds. Can you see Job staggering back? grasping on to anything to stay standing. What was happening? What was happening? Again, he didn't even have time to catch his breath before this, verse 17, while he was yet speaking. There came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And again, I alone have escaped to tell you. So another foreign army had just carried out a premeditated, precise raid on Job's lands. Once again, the only servant to escape the attack had fled back to Job to tell him. The Chaldeans, three waves of them, they came relentlessly. They just didn't stop attacking. And your camels, all 500 of them, they were stolen. And all your servants were slaughtered. I'm all that's left. Can you even imagine Job's state of mind anymore? Modern day equivalent, this is grasping at straws to try to think of something, but to the magnitude of this event, could be something like a, a rich president of a huge corporation watching his 
business's headquarters where his hundreds of employees carry out all of his, the entirety of his business blown up by a bomb. And him watching it happen. As far as I know, that's never happened. But this would be a horrifying, traumatizing catastrophe. Not only would his entire life's work and livelihood be gone in an instant, but the loss of life alone would be staggering. And for Job, it was only going to get worse. Much worse. That very moment, a fourth servant ran up with the worst news of all. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You know that this sinking, nauseating feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you hear something tragically sad? Many of us maybe have never felt it yet. It's the feeling a parent gets when they get a phone call in the middle of the night. Sir, this is the police, and I'm sorry to tell you your child was involved in an accident. Or the feeling when a military officer has to deliver news to the family of a fallen soldier. Or the feeling when you get when you first hear that your parent is suffering from stage four cancer. Give them days to live. Either something terribly sad already happened or is going to happen soon and you just want to shut down, collapse to the ground, wail out a cry. This has to be what Job felt in that moment, except ten times over. Like any parent, he would have gladly given his life for any one of his kids' life. But in a moment, thanks to a a freak dust storm or tornado, all ten of them were gone. He never hear them one of their laughs again. Never see their smiles again. Never hold them in a hug again. I mean, all three of the previous disasters had to pale in comparison to this one. And thus, in a matter of minutes, seconds even, Job lost just about everything. Went from unfathomably rich to utterly destitute. Two human-led terrorist attacks and two natural, quote-unquote, disasters had ruined him. Back in verse 10... 
Satan had said that God was protecting Job on every side, but now he was attacked from every side. Quite literally, as it says, his son's house collapsed from all four corners. I am sure that Job couldn't even process everything he was hearing. No matter how much grief we have experienced on earth, and you may have had a lot, I am confident that we cannot even fathom what Job was going through here. But perhaps we should try to. Because we need to feel the weight of this. Sympathize with Job. Sympathize for him. Empathize with him. Weep alongside of him. If, if tears come to your eyes and you hear this story, that's okay. This is a tragic, crushing, catastrophic personal calamity. Imagine losing your livelihood, hundreds of your friends, and all of your children in one minute flat. This one disastrous day will shape the rest of the book of Job. So remember this. Remember how it feels. Christopher Ash says, throughout the rest of this long book, we must never forget the trauma of this scene. Okay, so sear this into your memory. And not just for the, the sake of this sermon series. Do it for the sake of your life experience. Because while you may never suffer to the extreme that Job does, you will suffer. As Don Carson told us when he was here, if you live long enough, you will suffer comes to all of us. Many of you know this firsthand. You've experienced deep and dark sorrow. And one of the reasons I chose to preach through Job is that over the past little while, many of you in our church family have gone through some fairly intense suffering. Right? Cancer, family strife, job loss, infertility, miscarriages, loved ones' deaths, and much more. And I can guarantee that more hardships are right around the corner for others of us. As Christians, we need to know how to suffer well. Because Satan is still on the prowl. And sin and pain and death haunt us all. So we need to be prepared. In our minds, in our hearts, in our souls. And we need to know how God wants us to react. How we should respond to tragedy. Whether our own tragedies, or our friends, or our cities, or our worlds. Everyone responds to tragedy in different ways. Whether crying or weeping or shock or denial or dismissal or isolation, anger, doubt, cursing, guilt, bargaining, depression, and so on. 
But it is my belief, it's my belief that the higher your view of God, the greater your response will be to tragedy. Okay, the higher your view of God, the greater your response will be to tragedy. As we know, Job had an appropriately high view of God. He feared God. And that fear of God led to a shocking response on Job's part. Absolutely stunning. In verse 20, after he hears about his children dying, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Here's what we should glean from this. Our fear of God should inspire worship even in the midst of tragedy. Our fear of God should inspire worship even in the midst of terrible tragedy. If you are thinking, how would Job react to this? We'd expect Job to begin weeping or maybe fall to the ground and his shoulders would just shake with silent sobs or he'd get angry. Maybe he'd curse God. Perhaps the, the last thing we'd ever expect is for him to start worshiping. And is that what he does? Is this not astonishing? Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He does grieve here as well, okay? Tearing clothes, shaving your head, these were cultural signs of grieving. And he fell to the ground, likely shaking with those sobs. And one thing this should tell us is that grief is not wrong or sinful. Because he says right after, in all this, Job did not sin. There is a time for tears, Grieving and worshiping can happen at the same time, simultaneously. But what Job said through his tears, as he worshiped, is powerful. He first talked about how powerless and possessionless he truly was. And he said in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. So he was acknowledging that when he was born, he owned nothing. He had nothing to his name. And that when he died, he would be able to take nothing with him. Everything he temporarily owned was really God's possession. Even his kids, God's possession. Randy Alcorn says this, he says, Suffering reminds us of our inability to control life. 
it becomes much easier to trust God when we understand that what he takes away belonged to him in the first place. And thus, Job's second acknowledgement, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because everything originally came from God. It was God's prerogative to take it back. Now this can be a really difficult truth for us to grasp, or more so to accept. But it's true. Job was admitting that he didn't earn any of God's blessings. He was blessed by God. So if, if God wanted to remove some of those blessings, it was his right to do so. Therefore, no matter what happened to Job, nothing about God's nature or character changed. God was still to be praised. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. Notice that he believed that God was sovereign. He didn't know the whole heavenly backstory that we know. Job didn't know that Satan was actually behind a lot of this. But Job knew that ultimately God was behind everything. And he reigned. We marvel at, at Job's maturity here, at his response. You know, we still question, how could he worship? How could he worship? The answer is he could worship because of what he believed to be true about God. He could worship because he feared God. And he trusted God to do what was right. He believed God was sovereign and just and good and loving and glorious. Therefore, God must have had his reasons for taking everything away. Even the incredible fact that Job didn't sin at all in his reaction was a testament to his fear of God. Satan had predicted that Job would curse God, but instead Job blessed God. Satan was wrong. And again, God's honor and glory was what was at stake. Even if Job wasn't fully aware of it, Job was being tested. Would he worship even if he lost everything? And guess what? Job passed the test. Satan lost the wager. God won. And God was glorified. Much in the same way, whenever we suffer, God's glory is at stake in the way we respond. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1. He says, In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see what this is saying? What are our griefs and our trials and suffering supposed to result in? One, our faith being tested and proven to be genuine. And two, our God being praised. Christopher Ash again says, When Jesus returns, the fact that a Christian has gone on trusting and believing, even though all the blessings have been removed and he has suffered severe trials, will prove to the universe that another human being considers God to be worthy of worship simply because he is God. God will be praised, his glory adored, and his honor seen by the universe because Christian men and women have gone on worshiping him when all the blessings have been taken away. Therefore, it is imperative that we worship in the middle of the storms of life. Do you believe these things to be true in your life? Is God good and great and glorious no matter what happens to you? Because God gave you everything, does he have a right to take anything away from you? He does. He can. And he may. Is he still worthy of your praise then? tell you one thing, though, that he'll never take away from you. If you truly believe in Jesus and trust God for your salvation, he will never take Jesus away. Why not? Because everything was taken from Jesus. Except the the cup that he asked to be taken away. Jesus has to be the only person in history to ever lose more than Job lost. And because everything was taken from Jesus, even his life in suffering for us, God has promised that those who believe in Jesus will never lose his love. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. Lo, I will will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always. He'll never take Jesus. Jesus took what we deserve so that we could be given what he deserves. God's eternal favor. His eternal pleasure with us. And like Job, except even in a greater way, Jesus found God to be worthy of worship even in the midst of of his trials, in the midst of his tragedy, as Jesus did not count greatness with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and dying all for the glory of God the Father.
question remains, will we believe that Jesus is enough for us? That no matter what God gives or takes from us, he is worthy of worship. If we haven't decided to live our lives for the glory of God, yet we must do so even in this moment. Like Job, we must resolve to fear God and turn away from evil. To believe in Christ. Because no matter what our circumstances or our feelings, God is worthy of our all. Even in the midst of tragedy, Job found God to be worthy of his fear and worship. Therefore, we're, we're meant to be impressed by Job's character, but even more impressed by God. Unfortunately for Job, he had just gone through his first test. Shockingly, more was yet to come. However, even as more changed for Job, God still didn't change. And so what we're going to see is Job still praises. Hudson Taylor, the renowned missionary to China in the 1800s, Hudson Taylor lost his daughter at the age of eight. This is Gracie. And right when their grieving would be the fiercest, he wrote this to a friend back home. He said, Beloved brother, the Lord has taken our sweet little Gracie to bloom in the purer atmosphere of his own presence. Our hearts bleed, but above the rest this note shall swell. Our Jesus has done all things well. The gardener came and plucked a rose. And another human being considered God worthy of worship simply because he was God. And when you face cancer and say, God is good, Another human being considers God worthy of worship simply because he is God. Another fears and glorifies God. And when you hear of death, and you say, yet I will trust God, another fears and glorifies God. And when you experience great loss and say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, Another fears and glorifies God. And when you're in agony, and you say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, another fears and glorifies God. And the universe stands in awe. Not of us, but of our God, who is worthy no matter what. Let's pray. God, we don't know what's down the road. 
you do. We don't know what may happen in our lives, what suffering we may experience. You do. Help us be prepared. Help us react like Job, like Jesus. That we would have your glory at heart. And that we would worship you in the middle of whatever happens to us. For you are good. You are great. You are glorious. You are holy. You are wonderful. You are awesome. And you deserve our all. So may we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.